0: Candace Long with Lessons in the Latter Days, offering Biblical commentary to make sense of the times we're living in. Today's topic is the Nephilim UFO Connection, Part 2. Because of the scope of this subject, I decided to look at this Nephilim UFO Connection from three separate points of view. In Part 1, we looked at it from our perspective, using the lens of four events following World War II on how the Nephilim first made contact with us in the 1940s, which led to government cover-ups and murders of many, trying to discover the truth. In Part 3, we'll view this from God's perspective But in this episode, I'm going to hone in on how the Nephilim view themselves, taken from their own writings, drawings, and artifacts, going back thousands and thousands of years before our Old Testament was written. What did the Nephilim record about themselves? Who are they? Where do they come from? What do they want? My source material comes from the work of the late biblical scholar and internationally acclaimed author Zechariah Sitchin, who was born in Russia and grew up in Palestine, where he acquired a profound knowledge of modern and ancient Hebrew, other Semitic and European languages, the Old Testament, and the history and archaeology of the Near East. Sitchin is one of few scholars able to read and interpret the clay tablets as well as ancient Sumerian and Akkadian languages. He is most known for a series of books called the Earth Chronicles, which is his account of the earliest of civilizations based on the writings and pictorial evidence recorded by the ancient civilizations in the Near East. Before I began, I have to reiterate that I am not an expert on UFOs or the cosmos. What I am is a spiritual forecaster and interpreter of the signs that we are witnessing now, having researched the biblical end of days for over 30 years. I believe God has given me a perspective that is needed right now, an informed one, and not one to cause fear and panic. We will be hearing more and more in the coming days about strange events in the skies. This is part of Jesus' own words in Luke 21 that there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. The Lord wants us to have knowledge and understanding. Now, let me state at the onset my premise in this episode. Jesus told us in John 16, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. I believe that the Nephilim are gearing up for their visible re-entry into our culture because they truly believe they have legal right to ownership and lordship over our world and its people. This episode is the alien story, their version of the creation of mankind and the role they played in it. Now, as I narrate their reality, I want you to see how their worldview has been manifesting itself in our country in the highest echelons of power. Woodrow Wilson, who served as our 28th president from 1913 to 1921, is quoted as saying this, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it, What you are about to hear is not fiction. It is taken from historical artifacts and it will unmask what people refer to today as the deep state comprised of entities, I believe, are from another world. You need to know that when interpreting the Sumerian language and recording their story, Zechariah Sitchin used the Old Testament as his anchor. Nonetheless, he presents in his books a narrative that suggests that the earth was visited in its past by astronauts from another planet. Where did the Nephilim come from? In his book, The Twelfth Planet, Sitchin writes that a collision took place in the ancient past, which resulted in an intruding planet being captured into the sun's orbit, making it part of our solar system. Our solar system contains the sun and ten planets—Earth, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto—totaling eleven celestial bodies. But the ancient Sumerians told of a twelfth member of the solar system. In fact, their religion, along with the Babylonian and Akkadian, were all based on the veneration of this twelfth planet. It is known as Nibiru, which is home to the gods who came to earth. Sitchin breaks down the word Nephilim into its three-letter Semitic root, Nun, Fe, Lamech, or N-F-L, which means to be cast down. So the Nephilim were those who were cast down upon Earth. The early artifacts, drawings, and celestial maps show the arrangement of the planets, their orbits, and visual landmarks along the flight paths from Nibiru to Earth. These drawings also show these beings standing upright as men and women wearing helmets with headphones next to fiery rockets and wings denoting flight. This twelfth planet is often referred to nowadays as Planet X, and what makes it hard to locate is that according to their maps of the heavens, all of the planets in our solar system rotate counterclockwise in a circular motion around the sun, whereas Nibiru rotates clockwise and its orbit is oblong. To show you how oblong its orbit is, it takes the Earth 365 days, or one year, to orbit around the Sun, whereas it takes Nibiru 3,600 years to make one orbit. This unit of measurement is called a shar, S-H-A-R, in Sumerian. Now, we read in Genesis 6 that the Nephilim angered the Lord when they came to earth and had children by earthly women. Quote, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Sitchin points out that the Hebrew verb tense translated shall be one hundred and twenty years is actually past tense. His days were a hundred and twenty. Sitchin believes that God was saying that 120 shars, or 432,000 earth years, passed between the Nephilim's first landing on earth and the flood, accounting for the ten kings who ruled earth before the flood. Now, this interpretation aligns Genesis 6 with the Sumerian records. This timetable also parallels the periods of civilization that scientists have recorded, such as the Neolithic period around 11,000 B.C., the Pottery Era at 7,400 B.C., and the beginning of the Sumerian civilization around 3,800 B.C., all of them 3,600 years apart, or one char between each era. What this suggests is that every 3,600 years, Nibiru comes close to Earth, providing easier access to our planet. Sitchin writes, It's not unlikely that the Nephilim reviewed periodically mankind's progress, since they could meet in what was known as the Assembly of the Gods each time Nibiru neared the Earth, which was when the tenure of rulership changed from the time of landing to the time of takeoff. Now apparently the people of the ancient world considered the nearing of the twelfth planet as a sign of upheavals, great changes, and new eras, especially regarding rains and flooding. For the flood during Noah's time was not purposed by them, according to their records. On the contrary, the gods were forced to flee Earth in their rockets as the flood waters covered the earth. Their escape is why they were able to return. So who were these gods? Now, Sitchin records a dynasty of gods, a divine family, closely related yet bitterly divided. Anu was considered the Sumerian father of the gods. In the Babylonian texts, his realm was the expanse of the heavens. Now, while Anu remained in Nibiru, rulership on earth was given to his two sons who were half-brothers, Enlil and Inki. Enlil was the firstborn who arrived on our planet before earth became settled. Enlil made his headquarters in Nippur, which is in the present-day southeastern Iraq, and was described and worshipped as God of heaven and earth, dispenser of kings, chief executive of the assembly of the gods and grantor of the agricultural system that the people enjoyed. Now, the third great god was another son of Anu named Inki. The records described him as a master engineer, lord of the seas, prince of the earth, miner of gold, and the god who brought about civilization and was self-proclaimed lord of the earth. Inki was the chief scientist of the gods, outlining the methods by which man was to be created. He burned with jealousy against his half brother Enlil. Now to gain power over Enlil, Inki wooed his sister, Ninhursag, and she gave birth to Inki's firstborn, Marduk, who is an active force in today's unrest. So just to review, the leading characters of this narrative are the three royal siblings, Enlil, Enki, and Ninhursag, who came as gods to rule over earth. Now, they were all intimately involved with what took place during the creation and development of mankind. There were also several hundred rank-and-file gods called Anunnaki, who also came to earth and were assigned general duties. But the power to rule was entrusted to the twelve leading gods that made up what was called the Olympian Circle. And it was these original twelve gods of heaven who came down to earth and ruled over the demigods, the half-divine, half human. And as the civilization developed, many gods were born on earth. These gods were physically similar to mortal men and women, were able to procreate and intermarried to maintain or increase their power. They were intimately involved with human affairs on earth. They could travel at immense speeds, appear and disappear at will, and possessed weapons of immense power. As mankind developed on earth, the earthlings developed elaborate rituals of worship to gain favor with the god in charge of a particular activity the humans wanted success in, whether it was agriculture, mining, working with metals, or utilizing hidden knowledge to gain control over their enemies. These Sumerian and Akkadian writings leave no doubt that the peoples of the ancient Near East were certain— that the gods of heaven and earth were able to rise from earth and ascend into the heavens and roam the earth's skies at will. The flying machines were meant for the gods and not for mankind, and men could ascend only upon the express wish of the gods. Interestingly, the verse in Genesis 6-4, which, in describing the Nephilim, is typically translated this way, These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Sitchin writes that the word renown is translated in Hebrew as the word Shem, which originally meant he of the fiery rocket ships. Thus, this verse is found in Sumerian literature and translated as they were the mighty ones of eternity, the people of the Shem meaning that the Nephilim were those of the fiery rocket ships and commanders of the spaceport of the gods. In exploring our planet prior to their first landing, the Nephilim chose an area with a temperate climate, accessible water, fertile land to sustain the plant and animal life needed for food, and oil fields needed for energy and transportation they focused their attention on three major river systems and their plains, the Nile, the Indus, and the Tigris-Euphrates. Each was suitable for colonization and in time became the center of ancient civilization. Sitchin suggests that they initially landed by splashing down into a nearby sea in a hermetically sealed capsule and once here, they established spaceports in suitable places such as Babylon. Africa was of particular interest to the Nephilim because it provided access to mining gold and other important minerals. Extensive references to gold in the ancient texts suggest that the Nephilim were familiar with metallurgy from the earliest times, and with his engineering genius, Inky was in charge of all mining operations. There were many jealousies, power struggles, sexual intrigues, and battles between these gods and between their children and grandchildren. The assembly of the gods were often called on to mediate disputes for the divine succession. And the records indicate that the greatest trading center was the biblical Haran, and their common language was Sumerian. So how were these Nephilim involved in creation? Now, the Sumerians record that man was created by the Nephilim, which seems to contradict with both evolution and Judeo-Christian beliefs. But Sitchin sees no conflict. How so? Well, for one thing, this was during the era when only the Nephilim lived on earth and Nippur was inhabited by the gods alone. Their writings describe the creation of plant and animal life in terms that conform to evolutionary theories. The second part, though, that of conflicting with Judeo-Christian beliefs, is a little more complex. All of their texts assert that the gods, plural, proposed to the assembly of the gods the creation of a lowly, primitive worker to do their grunt work. And they referred to this primitive ape man as a Lulu. And to them, the Lulu's sole purpose was to serve the gods. They proposed this creation was to be made of soil and be similar to the gods physically and emotionally. This was not the Adam of the Bible who is our ancestor. The narrative includes a slumbering Inky who was awakened only to discover that the creature whom Inky proposed already existed. Now, since he was the chief scientist, he saw the answer all at once. Inky said, bind upon it the image of the gods. The reality was that the Nephilim did not create man out of nothing. Rather, they took the ape man, Homo erectus, and implanted on him their own image and likeness. So Inky's ingenious solution was to create the system to mass-produce a race of these primitives, adapting them to be able to handle tools and work in the mines or wherever they were needed. Now, the process involved genetic engineering to come up with the right formula to manufacture the perfect specimen. Now, please note that I did not say create out of nothing the perfect specimen. I used the word manufacture. As confirmation, Sitchin cites examples of many deformed humans created by Inki and Mother Goddess Nehersag on their assembly line of trial and error. At long last, they fashioned a being that they named Adapa, one who was genetically compatible to marry and have children, but it had to be a mixture of a god's blood and earthly clay. Anu refers to Adapa as the human offspring of Inki. In the same breath, we are told that the deity, our god, created in his likeness and image only a single being, the Adam, Adam, and fashioned Eve from his rib. Thus paralleling the Genesis account, we have two versions of human beings multiplying on the earth, those created through Inky's genetic manipulations and the biblical lineage of Adam and Eve. At some point in the Sumerian records, most of the humans, who were all banished from Eden, returned to Mesopotamia to live alongside the gods, to serve them and worship them. The biblical narrative follows the line of Seth, and it was during the leadership of Seth's firstborn, Enosh, whose name in Hebrew means human being, that mankind began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now what grieved the Lord God most as mankind developed was the extent of evil desires of his heart. Having their eyes opened and discovering sex, man had become little more than sex maniacs. The early writings speak freely and eloquently of sex and lovemaking among the gods, but what angered God most was the defilement of the gods themselves by having sex with earthly mortals and polluting the human bloodline. And it was here when Jehovah said, Enough! By intermarrying with those of decreasing genetic purity, mankind began to deteriorate. Civilization basically consisted of the rulers and the slaves. The Nephilim continued to exercise lordship over the lands and its people. They appointed intermediaries between them and the masses, and they referred to these intermediaries as gods or lofty ones, very similar to the role the Illuminati or the Illumined Ones play today. These human rulers, emissaries, made sure that the humans did what the gods wanted and taught the laws of the gods to the people. They rebuilt where cities had originally been before the flood, and these areas were peopled by Noah's three sons, and each was assigned to one of the deities. Now, by the third millennium B.C., the Nephilim declined with their children and grandchildren crowding out the older gods. So it was time for a new playbook. The gods retained powers to conduct foreign affairs which involved gods in other territories. But the imperial mandate became divide and rule. Now we see this play out today within the complex inner workings of the New World Order whose mandate goes by the name of ordo ab keo, which means order out of chaos. By dividing people and fostering chaos, today's Nephilim in Brooks Brothers' suits are still doing what they have always done, enslaving the bulk of humanity to do their bidding under the all-seeing eye of Satan. If you'd like to refer this episode to others, you'll find it on my podcast page under resources at candislong.com, and I will list the resources I used to develop this episode. Next time in Part 3, I will look at the Nephilim UFO connection from God's point of view. How much sorrow He has endured from the gods that He created. betray Him day in and day out. You will be amazed at how much our God has done to protect and rescue those whom He has chosen to spend eternity with Him. I'm Candace Long. Thank you for joining me. I hope you will join me again next time for Lessons in the Latter Days. God bless.